Oh yeah, let's get this party started up in here. Whoop, whoop. Hey, this is Mark. You're listening to this show probably on your mobile device, whether it's iOS or Android or even Windows Mobile. <laughs> Who has one of those? Uh, but anyway, you're probably listening, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or some other wonderful mobile app that brings this amazingly awesome show to your ear holes. Yeah. But did you also know that you can find this show, among several others in this category, at the Tangent Network? That's right. Go visit TangentBoundNetwork.com. Check it out where you can always get the latest episode of this and other shows quite like it. Although, admittedly, there is no show quite like this one. This is Sarah Miller from Ink Master Season 2, and I have issues. Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to the 50th episode of Adrian Has Issues. As always, I'm Adrian. I had a few options of things I wanted to do for a 50th episode. Unfortunately, those plans didn't necessarily work out. But yet, I feel that this episode is a really strong one for a 50th. And once you get listening, you're going to then understand why I chose this to be my 50th episode. Because in a lot of ways... My guest, who I will introduce in a minute, a lot of things that he has said really spoke to me in terms of being a creator and being a podcaster. And while I interview guests who I think people will love, in a way, it also kind of helps me because I, for one, always like hearing the process and how not only comic books are made, but how, you know, music is written or how, you know, movies are done. Like, you know, there are things that we take for granted and especially where we're so used to having everything just sort of handed to us. Sometimes you kind of forget that a lot of projects, be it movies or music or comics, whatever it is, like they take time to make. And like I said, our society, we're very used to getting things very quickly, you know, on demand as we ask for it, it's already there. And especially in the current climate with comic book culture, where the info dump is kind of staggering when you think about it, you will find out about a movie almost five years before it even happens. You know, let's take, for instance, you know, the Marvel movies or even like DC or things like that. We kind of know the process of every step of the way, like years before these things come out, we know the cast, we know the crew, we know the entire plot. And before, let's say, a movie comes out, we will then get at least three trailers, uh, maybe four counting international like TV spots and things like that. But in a lot of the things that we consume in our pop culture, we now are at a point where, thanks to social networking, we know so much about things before they come out. And some would argue that perhaps it sort of takes some of the fun, takes some of the mystery out of it. 
And for a very long time, I was one of those people who just did not understand that because I'm like, you can ignore all that. Like, if you don't want to know about something, you can just turn it off. Like, matter of fact, I just saw on Facebook, Star Wars Episode Eight. like, there's rumors that a video reveals the title. But I'm like, you know, this movie is another, what, year or two out? I don't necessarily want to know the title song. We're just going to skip it. But not everybody gives you that option because a lot of times things get spoiled just in headlines or just roundabout conversation. I say all this for a certain reason, because today's guest, Jing Jin, who is the owner of Broken Heart Productions and the creator of a comic called Symphonic Verses, got into this great discussion about how sometimes it's better to wait on certain things before you go ahead and announce them. Um, like I said, Symphonic Verses is a comic that he had been working on for the better half of, I think he had said, if I'm not mistaken, at it's been at least nearly 20 years of this story sort of constantly being shaped and being written. And at the time of this recording, he was on the cusp of announcing some pretty big things, which as those things will hopefully come out within the next couple of weeks, I will do my best to post them. But he discussed the idea of how long it took to create this comic book. We also find out that we're very big Final Fantasy fans, and we got into a little bit of a geek out about the upcoming Final Fantasy 15, which, you know, I don't want to necessarily spoil all of it, but... The development cycle for the game has been at least a decade long. And we get into the, the story about how the game's original director had sort of been playing the long game in terms of creating the story and crafting it and sort of taking his time in getting it out there. But then as time went on, unfortunately, he was taken off of the project and the new head sort of did things a little bit differently than what the original vision had intended. So we kind of go back and forth, but it was interesting how in discussing the story about the creation of Final Fantasy XV also mirrors Jingjin's personal story of getting this made because in a way he's held things very close to his chest and hasn't spent a lot of time always giving out information until he's pretty much just about to announce it. So. It was pretty cool just getting the story, and it's very inspirational in a way because, like I said at the beginning, we're so used to just having everything handed to us at lightning speed. Sometimes you kind of forget that a lot of the things that we enjoy, they take time to make, and sometimes it's best to just sort of respect the process a little bit. And, you know, I was one of those people who, you know, it's been a decade since they announced Final Fantasy 15, and how come it's taking so long, and why is this, why are they jerking us around and things like that? But then, as Jing kind of explains the story, because he has very extensive knowledge of it, he really breaks it down to a point where it makes sense to me. And while I'm still very impatient because I'm excited, especially having played the demo, I just got so much out of this episode. And then we also get into a little discussion about how, I guess, to compare to a podcasting thing about, you know, the numbers game or getting too caught up in things that aren't necessary and just really enjoying creating the things that we love and just really collecting all these experiences that sort of make life better. And I know that sounds very corny in retrospect, but yet, if for nothing else, I took a lot out of this, and Jing's a really great guy. Really hope you guys enjoy this episode. Before I go, though, I just want to let everybody know that Adrian Has Issues is a proud member of the Tangent Bound Podcast Network, where I am joined by some other great shows like Moving the Needle, Geek Up and Go, That Man on Fat Man, Dark Angels and Pretty Freaks, 
the Tangent Bound podcast itself and so many more great podcasts. And the show itself is available on iTunes, Stitcher, we're on Google Play, uh, the Satchel podcast app, which if you haven't checked it out, please go to your Play Store or the iOS Store and download it. It's a really cool podcast app. It's a really cool alternative if you're maybe not a big fan of Stitcher. The show can be found on adrianhasissues.com, and I've been doing a lot of music blogs. As my old music blog, Hop Snobbery, is now a part of Adrian Has Issues. I've also just been doing some other really cool articles, like Comic Book of the Day, and also another blog called Geeking Ain't Easy, where that's basically the blog in which I give you my thoughts on certain topics. But I hope you enjoy the blogs. And if you have any other questions, please um, hit me up, adrianhasissues at gmail.com. And please, if you are subscribing to the show on iTunes, please leave a five-star rating and review because those ratings and reviews definitely help out the show reach other listeners. But it also helps me because the more feedback I get, the better I can tool the show for everybody else. And I always love hearing from listeners, whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener. I just like having these conversations with people. So... Again, I know I had plans to do something really big for the 50th, but I think that this episode, in a way, is a really strong one. And it says a lot of things that I was probably planning to do anyway. So thank you, Jane, for taking the time out to talk with me. And for everybody else, uh, without further ado, here is episode 50. Just kick back and, you know, just talk about what you got going on. Oh, well, no, that's that's simple and to the point that's not bad at all. I'm working on this series called Symphonic Verses. It's been a project that now, I mean, I've been working on for about 20 years. Wow. Yeah, it goes all the way back to the 90s to when I originally conceived the concept for for this story. And at the time, the story was very different. It was about two twin brothers. But of course, as things go on about a year into it, everything really kind of shifted what's really going on in the story. The theme of it has really always kind of been the same. I really enjoy opera and and fantasy and Tolkien's work and Joseph Campbell and, you know, a lot of the Greek tragedies and uh, just things that, you know, very, very good. And and, uh, I kind of like to draw inspiration from these kind of various things. And the book really, although a comic book, it is like an opera in the sense of its tragic irony and a lot of the things that go on. It also, from a more, I guess you could say, like romanticized perspective, that it has that kind of Shakespearean influence in the aspect of if you look at Hamlet, if you look at Romeo and Juliet, it was a very great human emotion that really made it possible for people to kind of connect to these things that are going on. That's kind of the the crux of it is it's it's fantasy, but the world, although contemporary, um, like it's like a mixture of broke period but it's also modern but the technology matches the world um everything kind of fits together the way it's supposed to but underneath all that it's the human element the very very things that we can understand you know love and anger and sorrow redemption evil forgiveness all these things that as people we just they're elements of life i always figured that was very important to kind of keep in there um so it doesn't seem so so out of place that people can't relate to it. I mean, shoot, 
Shakespeare was centuries ago, but yet the Romeo and Juliet dynamic, even today, still holds in a lot of storytelling. So I think you're right, approaching it from a human aspect that you know, those elements will always be in play no matter where we are in society, whether we are in a Jetsons type future or a dystopia, you know, exactly. <laughs> those things will always be relevant. I really feel. And oh, my God, dude, the artwork, Um, I was looking it over. It's incredible. Like, it really does look, like I said, it's like that cool sort of Baroque style, but also futuristic. It's nothing I've seen in a comic before, not in the least bit. Oh, well, no, thanks, man. I mean, I, I really appreciate the compliment, and it's myself, and I have uh, I have two colorists who work with me, and I write and draw and design everything pencils and the inks, and we start to go over the methods of how things are going to be done. It's funny, the artwork. It, it took years to develop it to look the way that, that it does. It was a lot of trial and error as to what we were trying to do. I always knew what I wanted. I always envisioned, you know, I wanted it to look and feel its own way. Right. You know, you see so many books and it's funny. You look at comic books in general and there are so many artists that they want to get their books out and get series done. But the thing that seems to be a very common theme that you see is everybody will say, oh, well, I want to be the next Joe Moderera. So what do they do? They just copy Joe Mad's art. Even if they do it in a way that's well done, they're still just copying what already exists. They're not really trying to put their own flair into it. They say, look at Jim Lee or I want to be like J. Scott Campbell or the late, great Michael Turner. And so people instead of trying to really develop their own artistic expression, they just want to mimic what everybody's doing because that's what is acceptable or, or that's what's in. And for me, that was never really what I wanted. And I had stopped reading American comic books probably like 15 years ago. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was just, like, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's not really funny necessarily, but it's like, man, I called myself doing that once and it's like, I couldn't do it. Like I was like an addict. Like I needed it. Like I just, <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things where um, it was very difficult for me to, to really kind of develop things the way I wanted them. I felt like I was put in these limitations that that I didn't like. So I went looking for what I knew had to be out there. I went looking for these these people that I knew could help me, you know, kind of break these boundaries of what I was hoping to to achieve. I ran across Korean manhwa and, you know, other various Chinese graphic novels. That was the beginning of what changed everything for me going forward. Always, you know, enjoyed anime and, and these various things and had always really kind of done, you know, I was always trying to kind of do my own thing, but I didn't really have anyone to, and this is at a time when the social media was not, <laughs> it did not exist like it does today. Um, you know, there was no Facebook, there was no you know, tutorials on this is how you do this and this is how you get into comics. And it was at a time when comics were done, when everything was still at almost like such a guarded secret. Right, exactly. It was so hard to break in. Like, it's almost easier to, you know, break out of prison than it is to break into comics. <laughs> that is so perfect because it's the truth. It really is. And, and you know, when you look at the 
the way things are done, especially nowadays, there are so many independent publishers that have risen up that, you know, aren't mainstream because they don't have the market shares of, of, of course, Marvel, DC, Image, Boom Studios, Aspen Comics. Uh, you know, those guys have hunks of the of the market. And Marvel and DC, of course, have the biggest ones. Right. But all these other ones, it's it's so many of them that it almost becomes like an oversaturation of it because you think so i think in degrees it it can be and i mean it this way not in a bad way but it's like it's like you have a uh, you know five pieces of pizza and you've invited 50 people over for dinner see that sounds like a scenario i can relate to <laughs> <laughs> now you speak of my language <laughs> And, and sometimes it happens like that. You know, it's just one of those things where everybody is trying so much to go for for what they're after that um, it leaves very few spots. And the few people who get spots, there are very talented people who are in comics professionally, artists and writers and things. And then I've run across writers and I've run across artists and people that I've you know met online or on DeviantArt or you know, uh, in person at, at various shows and you talk about talent that is unbelievable and yet they're not getting the opportunity to. And it's kind of like what happens in, in this kind of medium where a lot of the books, not saying the art's not quality, but it's in some of them, it's almost like they've stopped trying as hard visually. Um, I like to look at a lot of the books that I see out, a lot of the things that are out and that are popular just to just to see what's going on and what's coming out and kind of what's in the market. And you see a lot of things and there are books that look really good. And then there are books that you see them and it's kind of like, hmm, that's interesting. And it's no doubt it has a very unique and very good story. And I'm not saying art is everything, but there are some series that you see and it just kind of makes you wonder, like, when did it become necessary to say we'll only do halfway mark and that becomes acceptable? I will admit being a writer, I usually follow story first. And uh, matter of fact, there's some friends of mine who were always going back and forth about a particular comic that while we really like the story, the art's not there. And I'll just say this, you do. It's then when you realize just how much everything really needs to gel together. And obviously there's aesthetic differences. There's some things that people are into that other people aren't into. Like, for instance, my girlfriend, she's very much into very like well done stylized animation you know things like anime whereas you know i have no problem watching something like adventure time and you know to her though it feels like downgrading a bit but it's kind of like two ways of looking at it but in the terms of comics it's very important to have a creative team of both writer and artists that really gel together and you almost kind of forget just how important that can be at times right exactly exactly i mean everything it takes up it's like making a cake you know you need eggs and the mix and oil, it all has to kind of mix together the right way. You know, you're very much correct also in the fact that a lot of times people get into, you know, the story, which, of course, the story is important because without it, it's just pictures. And it's like, OK, but where is it going? If it's, <laughs> it's like, you know, anyone can, can have very nice things to look at. But if it's not moving anything progressively, then it, it does us no good. And, and, you know, I look at things like I love Adventure Time. 
very good show. You know, Pendleton Ward, very creative. I look at things like Regular Show, also very good. J.G. Quintel. Oh, another one of my favorites. Brilliant. And it's funny how sometimes people will classify that kind of art because I've heard comments like that before where people look at it and they think, oh, well, it, it really seems, you know, a particular way. And the truth of it is it may look simple, but in its simplicity, that's where it's very complex. And it, it really is. And anyone who, you know, has a, a enough of a grasp of, of art, I tell people all the time, sometimes they ask questions about, you know, how do you do this and how is this done? And, and the reality is, is there is no method except the basics lead to the things that are complicated. People look at things that are very complex and they say, well, I want to do that. Okay. But when you strip apart what's complex, you'll see it's the very, very basic foundations of everything just from a different perspective. When when it comes to art, to music, whatever it may be, no matter how complex it is, it is always based on fundamentals. That's just it. It's just they know they've learned how to take those basics and show them to you in a different manner. But it's still the same thing. It's not different. Art like Adventure Time, yeah, it's simple, assumingly, but when you look at the story and you look at the characters and you look at, like, take regular show, take Mordecai and his relationship with Margaret, his his relationship with CJ, with his best friend, with Benson, their boss, there are so many dynamics to it that make it so lifelike that although the animation looks a certain way, as you watch it, you're so enthralled by what you see and what you're kind of feeling and that experience that's going on that you're wow, that's really is something I can really I can believe I can get used to it. And it's you know, it, it's a it's a powerful thing. It really is. I don't like to use like the term like inexperience, but sometimes um, I, I met an artist not too long ago and he was asking me some questions about what about this? And he would. He sent me an image and, and then he sent me another image and he's like, well, what about this one? And what if we do it this way? And and I'm like, here's the thing. I it doesn't matter what I think. It it matters what you think. It's how you want to interpret your art. It's your story. If you're going to hire someone to do it or if you're going to do it yourself, you have to be comfortable with it. He's only looking at it from one perspective that, well, if I get this person to do it and it looks this way, then everybody will love it. Not true. And that's really tough. It's very tough. It's very tough. That's and like you said, you're a writer. Writing in itself is an art that is so complicated because it either works or it does not. Yeah. And there's almost no guarantee because believe me, like growing up and, you know, I'm looking up, you know, there's books on writing and there's websites, there's all this stuff. But then it's like, okay, there's all this great information. Then when you sit down and look at either a blank notebook or a laptop or word processing document, and you're like, now what the hell do I do? <laughs> like, you know, it's <laughs> you can have all this great material, but it's like at the end of the day, you still have to strike the keys or start moving the pen to paper. And God, it's like anybody who thinks this stuff is easy. I'm not trying to sit there and scare anybody, but man, 
I'm not even like published by any means for doing a comic like you are, but yeah, it, it's pretty grueling. Man, it is a tedious process. And the fact that just from the place where you're at and you're doing your thing and you're working on it, and man, that's that's what's awesome about it. I love to always hear people say that they're working on their projects or, you know, there's still things they're just tackling, you know, a day at a time or things that they've been working on for a really long time. Because it's not about sign to this or I'm, I'm at this. And people like the idea of, oh, I'm a professional. I'm signed to this. I'm, I'm at this publisher. My blog has this many views on a daily basis. That's not the point. That's people lose sight of what's important. The, the key is to remember why you're doing the things that you're doing them, why you're telling the stories that you're telling and sharing that with them. And if there are people who believe in you, it's because of them that things are working. Because at the end of the day, yes, it will always be that person's art or story or project that they're doing. But it's the people who believe in it that make it possible. They make it come to life. And that's what you focus on. You have to pay attention to your fan base and you have to pay attention to the people who support you. And you realize it's not about you. It has to be about them because without them, <laughs> there'd be nothing. Man, I don't know if anybody else takes anything from that, but you really hit home right now. I'm not going to lie. Like a day ago, I'm talking to my girlfriend and I was kind of going on about how, um, well, like I say with the podcast. And, you know, it, it's hard, you know, you record the show, you're editing it, you're posting it, and you're really wanting it to be as good a show and whatnot, but it's very easy to get, like I said, like to get caught up in all the extra stuff, like, you know, at least in this case, you know, like, let's say the download numbers or are people sharing a show or are you getting any positive feedback and things of that nature, and... I make the joke that, like, I feel like I quit the show on a weekly basis because <laughs> <laughs> there's always, like, that moment where it's like, man, you're going through all this stuff. Like, is it really worth it? And you forget, or I forget in this particular case, how much fun I have doing this and meeting people and having these conversations that the downloads and stuff like that, like, they're, while they're great. That's not really what it's about, and that's not why I got into this in the first place. Right. It's, it's true, man. It, it's about the experience with like-minded people, and that's always the thing where, you know, the illusion of, of titles and, you know, oh, I've achieved this and I've done that. And, well, okay, but it, it, I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, it's like, well, but what does that do about moving your fan base closer to you? Right. Exactly. Uh, a couple years ago, I watched this TED Talk that was so brilliant, and it was about how to start a movement. And it showed this gentleman in California, and they were out at this big park, and he said, what, what we did was we took, we took a gentleman, and we sent him out, and this was an experiment that they wanted to show this is how you make things happen. And the guy was by himself. He goes out there. And they're recording from a distance, so no one knows they're being filmed uh, at, at this as they're waiting for this concert to start. So he goes out there, and he's dancing, and he's, you know, flailing his arms around, and just, like, <laughs> it, it looked like the craziest dance you'd ever see. He <laughs> at this point, people are looking, but people are, they're embarrassed, or they're, they're not sure about what's going on. He said, so what he does is, 
there there's always going to be your first follower. And what he does is he takes that first person who enters into wanting to dance with him, which was this other guy who came up and joined him. And he's like, sure, I'll jump in there and I'll do it, too. Well, what he did was he treated him like an equal. He showed him how to do the crazy dancing just like he was doing it. And by making him an equal, that first follower is the one who attracted the next set of people. And then as the crowd got a little bigger and everybody started to see that, oh, well, now there's 10 people. Now there's 30 people. Now there's, you know, 50 people. Before you know it, the crowd came massing in in swarms and everybody's doing this crazy dance in this giant circle. And everybody's just having a good time. No one's embarrassed. No one's worried anymore. But it worked. Why? Because the man who was willing to be daring took it upon himself to meet someone who he made an equal. The equal got people to do what he was doing. And they did what the lone nut was doing, which in turn made everybody like it. (laughs) And that's how it's done. You know, (laughs) at the end of the day, when you think about it, Look at Stanley. Look at Sakaguchi, father of Final Fantasy. Oh, love Final Fantasy. Sorry, you just you, again you, you're speaking my language here. Oh god, I, oh my god, I cannot tell. You. Okay, Final Fantasy 15, total nerdgasm. I just downloaded the new demo. I haven't got a chance to play it yet, but that first demo was breathtaking. I, you know what? I okay, and I just I have to. I have to be able to to just kind of express this momentarily. This game, you know, (laughs) this game is going to be a game changer. Now, granted, there are some reserves that I have about things, and it's normally not what people think. Okay. Well, you know, it's the gameplay, and it's this, and that's, no, for me, it's this thing. I don't fully agree with the method Square Enix went about it, but I don't think that taking Nomura out of the driver's seat was the best decision to make. Okay. Now, all right. See, now, now this is getting interesting. All right. I need to hear your reasoning for this because I know people were like calling for blood at one point, you know, and they really were. And I think, I think the reason why they, they put Tabata in that position was Nomura, you know, they, they call and Nomura also one of my inspirations that for many years I've, I've followed the man's a genius. He really is. That's just a, there's no other way to put it. He is, he is a walking genius and it's just brilliance to see him and Hideo Kojima and these various things. But, uh, Nomura, you know, that was his project. He came up with the concept, with the story, with the characters. He had this vision of what he wanted to do. And I remember, Every interview he had been doing, everything that, and a lot of people, I'll say sometimes will say things, and they're like, well, I don't remember reading that. It's like, no, it's there. There were so many (laughs) things he was doing, but people just pay attention to what they see, not necessarily, you know, the the puppet master behind it. And sometimes that's what's more impressive is is that than just the the visuals. But um, no more had he had in mind what he was going to do. He knew what he was after. And as I was observing things as time went on, and I remember the first time I saw that trailer when they unveiled it uh, that year in 2006, and I said, okay, it caught my eye right away. I said, this is going to be something. Yeah, because that was right around the time when 
Um, because that was what fall 2006. Because I remember Final Fantasy 12 had just gotten released, and I I know people debate back and forth which one's the best, but I had fallen in love with 12 ever since I played the demo a couple of months prior to that. But then, just as I'm playing 12, they're already releasing information for like 13, and at the time it was called what 13 versus or versus 13. That trailer, oh my god! Yeah, versus 13. That's what I mean about Nomura not being in the driver's seat. When we look at the first, those handfuls of trailers, they were somber. There was this elegant, dark beauty to them, to the way that the emotions were expressed, even though you didn't hear people talking. There wasn't in-depth conversation, but you could get the sense of something else going on. There was something much bigger than, than what we saw And as it went on, it became more complex and more beautiful. And as they started to talk about, you know, the 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 light of expiring souls and these things that were going on between Noctis and Stella at the time and in in what little form we were able to see them and to get them. And even when Nomura would do the trailers, he knew how to direct all the sequences that you would see in such a way that it played with your visual emotions And your literal ones where you were so overwhelmed by what you saw, it was breathtaking. It it would blow your mind every time you'd see something new because of how amazing it was. And I think because he he really knew what he wanted to do, it was taking time. And I remember he did this interview in 2010 and he said, when you're doing something new, It takes time. Right. And so it's not going to be a quick fix to these things. A lot of people, you know, like you said, they were very upset. Why? Because he kept he keeps things very close to the vest. He really does. He he guards his secrets. He he doesn't just show things out the way that most people do. I even remember in 2008. He talked about how one of the themes of the book is the road trip, but that really wasn't an emphasis of the story that he was trying to bring out. That was just an element to it that I believe he was going to interpret another way. Uh, so we fast forward to 2013. That epic trailer comes out because we hadn't had one since 2011. <laughs> yeah. I, to this day, I still watch that trailer and I get goosebumps like it just it was so good it was so good it was so epic everything and that scene where you see young Noctis sitting at the table with his father and he's talking about the food is awful <laughs> and his dad is, you know and it, it's like it's showing you these, these very interesting dynamics of of obviously that his father wasn't just a good man but he was a good king and he's trying to help his son to realize you can't say things like that because if you do the cook will be sent away. They'll get in trouble. So that's why he, you know, he took a bite and he's like, ah, you know, like it tasted nasty too, but he sucked it up and here he's the king. There was something so poetic about all of that. Yeah, it was definitely framed the way that a lot of the other Final Fantasy games up to this point weren't really approached. I I think that's something that I think a lot of fans took for granted, but I guess that leads into a whole other discussion, but I'll keep it on track. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I agree with you. I just, I, I think that Square Enix, they wanted because the fans, now I'm one of those people and I know there are others out there like me who, if Nomura said it's going to take two more years, great, I don't care. 
That's not going to all it's going to do is give us a better quality product. I'm not in such a rush that what we could have gotten and what will be are two very different things. And I hate to say this as much as I'm looking forward to playing the game, the game that we are getting and the game that Nomura originally envisioned. Now, I'm not him. I don't know how he thinks and feels, but as an artist, I can empathize with the idea that I am pretty sure that game did not come out the way he envisioned it to go. It didn't because he's not a driver's seat anymore. He gets to no longer right. be involved with, with you know, what's going on. And look how they changed the story. All of a sudden, here comes 2014. We get this new trailer. Soon as the trailer starts, Noctis is waking up in this car and the radio is on and the radio's like, yeah, the, you know, the treaty signing between King Regis and Emperor Idola Elder Cap is set to take place and blah, blah, blah. And then it drones out to the, and I'm like, wait a minute, but Noctis is in the city when it gets attacked. So why is he on the road? And they're hearing about this treaty signing that why wouldn't he be there for something so important for his, his, his duty as a prince, his duty as right. the, the son. I thought, well, that's that's really bizarre. That was the first thing that let me know something's wrong. And then they revealed that Nomura was no longer the director. And right after he made a statement that you cannot find it anymore online. I don't know if Square Enix wanted people to get rid of that statement, but Nomura said he can't talk about it, but he's not happy about the decision, but he's going to take it out on the Kingdom Hearts characters and the things that they will go through because leaving that project was not something he wanted to do. Yeah, that I remember. They definitely pushed him out. And believe it or not, like I was definitely one of those people who, I'm not going to lie to you, I was very not cool with the idea that, not necessarily that it took so long, but the fact that the development cycle for that game had went through all of these very odd changes. I felt that maybe they could have spaced it a little closer together between what was revealed and, you know, the finished product. But I really do feel that a lot of what happened to Nomura and what happened to Square Enix kind of happened as a result of, you know, 13 and that whole debacle where, I mean, don't get me wrong, the games were fun, they were enjoyable, but there was definitely a shift in, I don't know if it was Square Enix's priorities, but there was definitely, it seemed like there was a lot behind the scenes that was, like, we were basically watching Internal Strife being played out in video game form. Yeah, yeah, it, it, and it manifests itself in the quality of what goes on. There is no no doubt about that. I mean, I, I agree 100% with that, and, you know... <sighs> And it's just so, man, there are just so many things that, oh, my God, I just (laughs) like (laughs) I could for hours talk about how I don't agree with some of the like, okay this this has just always been my take on it from the beginning. okay when they Stella out of the game, I believe they did that because Tabata didn't know how to handle the story the way Nomura planned it. I really believe that solely because. He wasn't the creator of the story. It wasn't his baby project. Nomura was really the lifeblood that was into these characters and these things. He, he really put his, his self into it, especially from an emotional aspect. Tabata comes into this in 2012 
and he's the assistant director means he's working on certain elements of the game, but no more is driving everything else. Right. Well, Tabata gets in the driver's seat. They cut Stella. They cut out major elements from versus 13. Then it's like, okay, well, you're changing the story and they're trying to now Square Enix is saying, well, you know, games change and blah. Yes, we know things change. But again, I believe it's based on the fact he didn't know where to take the story the way Nomura knew how to do it. I think that was part of the problem. And so he emphasized on things that he found maybe an easier way to approach, like the road trip and this, you know, this fellowship and this bonding and all these things that are important to the story. But then they change, you know, Stella, they turn her to Luna Freya. And now she's an oracle. We still never really learned what Stella's original purpose was in the game. But the way it came across that it was kind of this complex rally of love and betrayal made me think about Hamlet when Polonius sent Ophelia to, uh, you know, to spy on Hamlet. So there was just there were so many things that it's like, OK, where did all that go? And. I, I just, oh, man, it breaks my heart. <laughs> it really is heartbreaking. But I do wonder, though, is there a possibility to think that maybe he will then revisit these elements in possibly, like, another game? Or do you think this is basically it? Like, we're never going to get that original storyline? Well, you know, they just did a, a thing uh, on Nova Crystallis that they had just released about the game being self-contained where there are no sequels and things like that. And Tabata is taking credit for a lot of stuff that I'm sure he was involved in, but I know he was not the only one making those decisions at that time. Nomura right. still, I think, was very much a part of a lot of things that went on, but he's, you know, now he's getting the credit for it. He's getting, you know, everyone is is praising him for what he's doing, and I'm not saying he hasn't done a good job. I'm not saying the man is not talented, but he is not Tetsuyu Nomura. That is the difference. That that one thing that may not seem like anything is really what makes it different. And I just feel that there is something that's going to be lost in that game because it was not allowed to be the way it was supposed to. So all these other elements that got cut out, I don't know if we'll ever get to revisit those because it. I would love, man, how awesome would that be to revisit these things they've changed but now they're making it seem like, well, we're not going to go back to that stuff. <laughs> it's like, well, then at least tell us what it was supposed to be for in the first place. At least give us that. Yeah. Because if you're not going to use it, just talk about it. It definitely feels like a spat between like a couple where it's like once they split apart, the doors are shut. There's no talking. There's no communicating. There's no, <laughs> you know, it's almost as if it completely didn't happen. And it's a shame because... Uh, I've been waiting for that game for so long, and I didn't realize, at least at that point, that so many changes have been made to the storyline. And uh, I don't know. Hopefully, at some point, maybe it gets revisited in something else, or maybe there's like a new DLC. But I'll be glad with what we get. But having heard a lot of what you know, what you were saying, man, now my heart's a little broken. <laughs> I hate to be the. <laughs> And it's it's tough because there are so many people I cannot talk to about these things because they get very defensive of uh, there are people who no offense to her, 
she runs this very, very famous Final Fantasy fan website and blog and all this stuff. And, you know, she's gone to like some of the big events and been there and, you know, met the directors and things like that. And that's all fine, well and good. However, those are the things that Tabata was doing things. That's what started to to make fans feel part of what's going on. Right. Nomura, again, and, and I like that Nomura kept things secret. I like that there were things we didn't know because the more you are curious, the more you are bound to wait to want to know what really is going on or who these people are. Then as we learn things, it changed and it changed again. And it's funny because look at even, um, look at, uh, um, oh, oh, my brain. The Niflheim Emperor. Now, his name was Idola Eldercap. Well, now they have changed it to Idolis Eldercap. And granted, yes, it's still Latin. However, that original form, Idola, it means to be spectacized or to to be put up to to spectate, to be looked upon with favor. And okay. it, and I just. <laughs> I'm like, dude, oh my gosh, like my, I can't, sometimes I can't even deal with the things I hear people say and do. And she made a comment one day and she was like, yeah, well, you know, they're Tabata's girls and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, I don't really get into like the, the, the banter online with stuff, but I was like, I, I have to just say one thing. I was like, well, Tabata is the steward. Those are Nomura's girls. Period. Oh, so he's basically like the Denethor of the Final Fantasy. Pretty much, series. he is the Denethorn son of Exalion who's doing things he shouldn't be doing. And it's like, look, you're you're doing a lot of stuff. You're looking into the plant here. You're doing things you have no business doing, and it's called him problems. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I feel so bad. Like if there's any diehard Final Fantasy fans listening to this, I'm like, oh man, this is, I, oh, <laughs> uh, I, but I can't think. I couldn't think of a better analogy than that. Or, or, <laughs> it's it's just it's the truth. It, it is so the truth. And she got really like upset because I said that. And um, I'm like, but it's the truth. Tobiah didn't create these characters. He didn't create this story. He he didn't. No more did, but people are forgetting. It's like people are so fixated on what's going on that they're still not wanting to say, hey, you know what? We we need to make sure the guy who put all this on the map that he gets the credit that he's due. You wonder if there's a possibility that they kind of maybe felt bad or regretted it after the fact. So by maybe burying it a little bit, like he's their conscious a little cleaner. I don't know, because it seemed very weird that when that separation happened that... It's almost as if it never even took place. Right, exactly. They did it in such a way where it, it's like nothing it's like nothing happened. Nothing even had went on. And I'm thinking who in the middle of this kind of production just jumps up and changes the captain of the driver's seat. Granted, they're like, yeah, we want him to work on Kingdom Hearts because only he can bring that story out the way it needs to be done. That right there. Right. It's like you just admitted a fact that we all know. Nomura can do things with the story. Most people cannot. So why would you take him off of his project? That And it's funny. 
this is how much he loved what he was doing. He said he didn't want to he he didn't want to release the the rings of uh, Final Fantasy, which at the time was still versus uh, thirteen to anyone when he did this interview until after they they did the uh, the twenty thirteen reveal and that it was actually fifteen now. Right. He said he went to Square Enix board and he told them I will do all the character designs for the third installment of the lightning series for FF 13. If you will just let me finish doing the game the way that I want to, he said it took months to convince them. So then he takes on the responsibility of designing all the costumes, doing all this work for the game while he's still working on final fantasy 15. He does all that. And I thought, okay, he's gone to all these great lengths He's agreed to do all this extra work to, to help that game move along so that he can working on his project in peace. And right. what do they do? Oh, well, we're going to let Tabata take over so you can go do Kingdom Hearts because we're all tired of waiting. The fans are tired. That that's it, it almost seems like behind closed doors. That's what it was about. Yeah. And the thing is, I was tired of waiting, but. If it came to the point where it was sacrificing that much. But again, I feel like a lot of their issues were happening as a result of what was going on with 13. Because at least on this end, from what my experience was, the reception of the 13 series, not nearly as glowing as I think they were hoping for. And I, and I wonder if they were maybe letting him fall on their sword because I don't think he had anything to do with what was going on. And I guess they figured because of the reception that 13 was getting, they wanted to kind of hurry up and move on to the next thing. But then, you know, they, they basically rushed them. Right. Like they rushed. And, you know, it's so funny. It's so funny that you say that he made a comment one day about the 13 series. And he said, well, the only comment I can make on it, not the way I would have done it with the emotions, with the characters and their their development. He said, but I wasn't the director on that game. So that wasn't a decision for me to make. But, you know, that's I approached it differently. Right. Again, yes, as you can see, the only reason I don't stalk Shakespeare and Homer is because they're dead, because, you know, <laughs> they're no longer here creating works of literary masterpieces. However, Carl Bang and Wing Shing Ma and Hong Tae Kim and Tetsuya Nomura and Kojima. Yes, I stalk all of them. You have to because that's how you learn. <laughs> you have to learn from the people who know. That's how you learn. Yeah. And that's the truth. I tell people all the time, they're like, well, how do you learn something? It's like when you learn a language. I'm Just a detour real quick. People say, well, I want to go to school for Spanish or I want to go to school for Japanese or I want to. That's great. There's a better way to learn. Go find an area where that's what they speak and immerse yourself in their culture. That is how you will learn. You'll have no choice but to. That That's how it happens. If you want to learn, go to the people who that is that is what they do, and then you will begin to pick it up yourself. But that's just me. That's how I was always taught you do things. You want to learn something, you go to the people who do it the best. That's how you do it. And I just really feel that Final Fantasy 15 is going to be great. It's going to be exciting. It's going to have a lot of very cool elements, but there are so many things that like take Kingsglaive, the movie. It looks phenomenal. The CG looks mind blowing, but the fact they've made a movie based around the attack instead of letting that still be part of the game. That tells you how big Nomura's original vision really was. They have had to break 
this series up into a game, a movie, and a five-part anime series because they said there's no way to do all of that in the game. Nomura was trying to make all of that one epic masterpiece. That's what he was going for. And to tell you the truth, I would have played if, let's say, because like you know, like a PlayStation Four disc is a Blu-ray. Even if it had to be multiple Blu-rays, like a four-disc PlayStation Four game, I still would have played the hell out of that. Could you imagine how beautiful that would be? A four-disc Blu-ray of Final Fantasy Fifteen. I man, forget about it. My, <laughs> I, I would lock myself away for probably a year and be like, y'all are not going to see me for a whole year. Got a lot of stuff to do, a lot of Final Fantasy that has to be played, and I want to explore every inch of that world. It just it, it, You have to just throw yourself in it all the way. Get all up in it. That's the only way it works. <laughs> That's what happened when 12 came out. My best friend, he got it for me for my birthday, and he looked at me and was like, look, I know I'm not going to see you, but I know you've been waiting for this. Um, it's been real. And I kid you not, I, I disappeared for about two and a half months. I, and it happens. And you know what I, oh, what I love about 12? One, the design's great. The music, oh. As getting oh, the music. music to my ear holes. It was just it it was just perfection. It was just so good. That opening scene, when you see Lord Rassler get killed, I was like, what? What? This is how we're gonna start this. Okay. Well, I it's <laughs> like I can tell this is gonna be one of those that it's it's gonna pull at the it's gonna pull at the old feelings there. You know, man, I uh that's my take on Final Fantasy 15. And and I am so thankful that you let me kind of ramble about that because I never really get to. I'm a big Final Fantasy fan, but it's like you clearly knew more about this than I did. I'm like, dude, my guests have the floor. You want to write about Final Fantasy? Let's do this because I love that series so much. And while there's some other great Squaresoft and Square Enix RPGs, but that one's my baby. Oh, yeah. Ever since I played what was, I guess, now considered Final Fantasy VI for Super Nintendo. Oh, eight. that game still drives me to tears. That, see, that, now that is how it's done. The fact something can give you an emotional attachment. I hear Tara's theme to this day, and like, I still, my eyes still well up. I'm like, Tara, no. Exactly. See, that's what's beautiful. That's the brilliance behind it. It is emotionally attached to you that you'll never forget it. You will always go back to that when it comes to things being done a certain way. Video games, movies, comic books, whatever it may be, that's what you have to do is you have to get people emotionally invested in what you're trying to do. And and I, for myself, I know that's what I'm trying to do. I look at certain things and it's like I want people to have that same reaction. I want them to be able to enjoy the experience that they have as they're they're going through this world and they're experiencing the things that are going on and there are some really huge <laughs> there are some really huge things that I thought we'd already kind of have solidified at this point they're not yet cuz if it was I would talk about it right now and I can't but what I will do uh. <laughs> I know dude and I'm sorry but what what I can do is this is once everything is finalized I will I will send you like the information about it and I'll make sure I get the information to you once I'm able to to openly talk about everything. But there is some there's stuff going on that in my wildest dreams, I never thought would have happened. But 
stuff is right there. So we're just trying to finalize the business side of things. And once that's done, I'll be able to talk about it openly. Uh, you will be one of the first people when it when I start sending it out to people, you will be among the first who I get that information to. Obviously, you've taken a lot of lessons from Nomura. Like, you know what? Wait on that. You take your time on it, so that way, once it's out, it's going to be, like, fantastic. So don't worry. I'm not going to sit there and try to get somebody else to take <laughs> over and release, you know? <laughs> be like, well, we're going to bring in this other guy. He's going to finish the story. I'll be like, I already finished the story. It's mine. <laughs> it's like, you're taking too long, clearly. <laughs> And, and I think that's one of the things that really is uh, is an important factor to it is I drew a picture of Adonis with his father. Okay. And uh, I remember I showed the original line art of it, or not the line art of it, like the original concept design for it before I started actually drawing it and, you know, starting to, to put all the work into it. And uh, I want to say two and a half months later at one of the active time reports that they that Tabata was doing in Germany, they unveiled that picture of Noctis with his father standing by that car when he's a little boy. And it's almost disturbing is the pose that Adonis and his father are in and how Noctis and his father are in is so identical. You would think that we both reference from the same picture. <laughs> That's crazy. And I have proof because the original post that I did of the design is still up on my book's Facebook page. And I showed a friend of mine who works at Sony Games. He works for Gamma Games, which is one of their exclusive studios in Singapore. Oh, very cool. Oh, yeah. He's a really cool guy. Very funny. I showed him the night they did that. I was like, oh, my God, dude, you need to see this. So I showed it to him on Facebook Messenger, and he said, do a print screen of it and make sure that the timestamp is in there. He said, because some of the guys that I know at his company, they're like, we know you couldn't have. How could you have possibly known? This is the first time they've showed it to anybody in the world. That's not part of the team. I said, exactly. How could I? How could I have known that this is the image that they were going to use? And so it was. All right, man. Talk about oddly. It's it's something that was like beautiful but disturbing at the same time, and it really was. And I thought, geez, Louise, you know, this is. This is not this is not at all what what I thought was uh, was was going to be happening. And yet it was it, it was just right there. And and so I say that to say there are sometimes I, I don't know. I think uh, I think sometimes we all think on the same wavelength and sometimes I think we hit that same spot together. And it, it's just like how. You know, people can work on different concepts of different things, not know each other, live in different parts of the world, and yet do something that is so similar to each other. You would think that they worked on the same thing and this was just both their take on it. Right. It's kind of crazy. It really is. I, I don't know how else to say it, but um, it just kind of happened that way. And, and I still have that print screen of that <laughs> that picture of me showing it to him on Facebook with the time stamped on the image and they had just released it. I want to say it had been online four or five minutes. And I said, there's no way that this picture you're seeing, there's no way I did that in five minutes. It's just not possible. 
No. I've, <laughs> I've had this for months, months before they even showed that. But there's a lot I haven't talked about. There are a lot of things I haven't shown people solely for the fact I went to one publisher and they rejected my series. And then they put out a book or they're doing a Kickstarter right now for a book where they have blatantly tried to steal concept designs from my work. Oh, that's dirty, man. Yeah. Like, wow, you're going to tell me no, but then you're going to turn around and cheaply imitate my own concept designs and work that I've done for my own book. And so that I was like, man, that's really whack that you're doing something like that. But it, it, you know, it's nothing that can be done about it. And it's one of those things where it's a crusade I would never pursue for the fact of even if I could show everybody all the proof that I'm right. These individuals have so many supporters and so many it would just turn into a headache that wouldn't it wouldn't amount to anything. Right. But I look at it this way. They only saw four pages and you got enough from just four pages that you tried to use it for an entire series. And I don't say this like, oh, you know, look at me and look what I've done. No, I try to just keep learning things every day and try to just keep understanding what I need to improve on and and design that I need to work on and things that I need to do. But okay, you know, you can do that. That's fine. But there are things that I have that people haven't seen yet. Man, you really mirrored Nomura here. Like, it's crazy hearing your story and hearing that one. It's like, man, the parallels are kind of uncanny. Man, it is a weird, weird thing. And I and why I'm bringing this up is because just in speaking to you, I can tell you're not a closed minded person. You're you're open to, to things. And there are some people I can never tell this to because they'd be like, well, that's no, that's not possible. Or maybe you saw it and you didn't think you saw, and it just turns into all these things. <laughs> I'm like, no, I, I'm telling you, it it was not there. That's how I know it just happened the same time I, I was doing my own thing. But I, I have no problem saying these things because it's like I, one, it's, it's just the truth. It's just kind of how things happened. But I like to keep things very close to the chest myself. I always have. If you look at the art, I may show a panel or two from something, but I never just throw out page after page after page after page after page of the book. I don't. It's those are things for two reasons. One, if you give everything away, people won't take time to invest in it later and really get to know it the way that they should. And two, if you give away the surprise, it kills the factor of them opening the book and turning the page and going, wow, I didn't expect that to be where it is. Or I didn't expect this to take me to the places that it did. I want people to be surprised. I want them to be excited and and to see these things firsthand. So I, there are so many things I don't bring up because it's like, no, if I... If I show you too much, if, if there's too much that's given, you're, it's going to lose the, the impact I would like you to be able to experience with it. And that's not what I want. I don't want people to lose that first time, okay, wow, I, I saw that and it wasn't at all what I was expecting it to be. And I think that's important. That's really, really important. And it's hard. Trust me. There are days where I'm like, man, you know, there are things that, we're doing that I, I wish I could I could show people and I took some of the art and I've been uh, showing it to 
um, a few people that I've had the opportunity to meet at various video game entities. And I met uh, Sergio from Activision Games. He looked at my work and he, you know, he gave me one of the most amazing compliments I've I've ever gotten. Like, I can't tell you how what and a, a humbling experience it really was like it. It was so mind blowing for someone like that to respond and, and to say the things that he did about the art and, and about this this vision that I'm trying to to share with people and, and that I'd like them to be able to experience. And remember the marvelous misadventures of Flapjack? Yes. So Thorpe Van Orman, he's on DeviantArt. He has a page and, you know, that's where a lot of us are, are all at um, and have been, you know, for a really long time. And uh, his page is on there. And I had went to his page and, and I had uh, saved some of his latest artwork that he had done at the time. Well, he came to my page. He said, hey, I really like your artwork. Um, you did a lot of the designs on the Lord of the Rings film, right? And I was like, uh, really? How? Like, what? You think that I I was the one doing that? And I thought, what? And I, I, print, I did a print of his comment. I will send it to you on Messenger so you can see it. Like, I had to save it because it was one of those things that it's like, how often does that happen that someone comes along and they're like, hey, you, you did those designs for the movies, right? Oh, see, I would have probably been the idiot who just had a paper like, yes, yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> like, you want to talk sometime, you know, you just give me a <laughs> ring. We can set something up. We'll, you know, I'll get in really deep really quickly, but it's okay. It's okay. We'll, just, we'll, we'll go from there. <laughs> um, he, and it's funny, and I replied, and I told him, you know, um, I said, I can't thank you enough for, for the kind words. I mean, that really is a um, like a really encouraging thing. It's a very humbling thing. And, and I told him I really appreciate it. I said, sadly, I'm not that person who uh, who's worked on any of those films. Well, I never heard from him again, but that's OK. Oh, that sucks. He's like, oh, wait, you're not. Never mind. <laughs> never mind. Yeah, it was like, oh, forget it. Never mind. Moving on. And I just thought, uh, you know, it was just one of those things. But it it, it happened and uh, and I still, like I said, I saved the, the the print screen comment because I thought, you know, it's just it was really cool because, you don't that stuff doesn't happen every day. And this was a few years ago. But uh, yeah, but it still just it, it cracked me up that that's that's what he said. But at, at the end of the day, you know, the experience that I, I'd like to to share with people is, is just that it really is an experience that I, I hope they will enjoy. And I mean. I think about how much I haven't shown. And I mean, there are maps, there are lineage charts, there are four different languages, compendiums of weapon sets, of skill techniques, of uh, various hunting and gathering abilities, sets of armor from the various kingdoms, the lineage of those, where they come from, what it means. Everybody has a name that has significance. All the designs have reference to where they're from or culturally where they're, they're situated in that part of the world. So nothing is ever, everything that I try to do for the book is never just done in, in a way that 
it it's lazier or haphazardly. Right. It's it's just done where it's like, okay, I just want to make sure that I'm I'm really really pouring myself into this. And and in the story, amazingly, what what it's about is there is this war that has been going on for the past eight hundred years. Now why this war started, a lot of people are not sure, but the ones who are pursuing the war and, and pushing it ever onward, uh, they come from the Countifalian dynasty, and the Counts are a kingdom of nobility. So it doesn't matter how low down on the social class that you are, every citizen, every member of that nation has a measure of wealth and nobility in varying degrees. But the more you go up, of course, those much higher in the the imperial circles and the political circles, they're the ones who hold more power. And then you have the imperial family itself, which runs the Countathalian dynasty. And their their dynasty has the the most influence the most power it's the oldest it is the grandest of all that make up you know that empire you have the noblemen of cursorus honorum and they also play a part into that and so this war's been going on well 800 years later as i said it's still happening they are to the point where now there's going to be this this peace there's going to be this treaty that is going to lay the war to rest right and so the glass kingdom which is a a prominent kingdom in the east it is the last empire of the eastern lands that has been untouched by the war because they're pacifist it's not that they're not great warriors and that they do not possess you know skills and and abilities that would allow them to very easily do things, but they have stayed out of the conflict all this time because they believe in doing things a different way. Well, the Glass Kingdom served as the neutral ground for where the treaty signing would take place. And it actually happens outside the imperial city. So it's like you have the empire itself, which, um, the, the real, the actual name of it, it's Glacius Glendafios. That's Oh, that is an awesome name. Oh, <laughs> that, that's an Elcyon dialect. And Elcyon, that's the race of people who come from that section of, of the world in the East. And so that in itself, it's its own standard. So you have the actual glass empire. Well, if you go down about a day's journey, there is a imperial city, which is known as Ithizonian. Ithizonian is where the treaty signing is going to take place. And it's because in the Glass Kingdom, um, and I did a video on this uh, at the beginning of the year, they have laws that unless you are a natural born citizen of the Glass Kingdom, you are not allowed into its actual, the heart of its city. Oh, wow. Then um, that's just how it's always been. If If you're not from there, you're welcome to Ithizonian. You're welcome to the borders outside Ithizonian, but you cannot enter into the actual empire itself if you are not a native citizen of it. And so that's where everything is set to take place. Well, Adonis is a prince 
and his family, their empire is like the mafia in the aspect that his father's kingdom was the strongest, but it's comprised of 12 empires altogether. His, they, they call it the Lucium Duodecim. And that's, that's where he comes from. That is, he is the heir apparent to that throne. And Lucium Duodecim makes reference to 12 lights that are divine or 12 flames that are divine. And that represents each one of the lords who is the last of these original bloodlines of kings and queens that came from the old world that are they're all that remains in this modern contemporary society. And so Adonis had something really tragic happen to him six months prior to the the first episode. So when the series starts, Adonis is actually traveling to the Glass Kingdom so that he can bear witness to this peace treaty. Okay. The council has suggested that we need to show our presence. We need to be there. So they send him and his mentor, who her name is Concerto Maestro. And Concerto is a countess who comes from the same kingdom. Her personal mentor and her teacher is one of the 12 lords who rules the empire that Adonis will, when he when he becomes of age, will secede and, and claim the throne to. So as his mentor, her job is to teach him and to train him his princely duties, their combat, economics, wisdom, philosophy, all of these things. That was her task, was to do that. And, and Concerto is a brilliant warrior. She's very dangerous. She's extremely powerful. Um, and... And it shows when the when when everything happens, there's a lot of very the action in the series. I wanted it always to be very thrilling and not to just be not just to be flat, but to really be something that uh, could could break the boundaries of what people saw as action in a comic book and to show them things in ways that I I don't think people are used to seeing like that. So it's taken a lot of work. A lot of time has has gone into the design and the structure of, of, of everything and the way that it will be shown. But um, so they they go to this treaty signing. And while Adonis is there, he meets someone very interesting who he did not think he would meet. It starts to change the tone of the way things are going to go in the story. It starts to it, it sets a tone for the way everything else will go in their world. There are celestial swords of power that were handed down from these great celestial dragons. Each one of the swords gave each kingdom the ability to rule itself, to govern itself, everything that came with it. Well, many of the swords were destroyed by their by themselves. They they destroyed their wielders and a lot of them were lost to time and thought gone and. You know, they thought, well, now there's there's not really any of them left. Well, then there's a second set of swords, the symphonic celestial blades, in which there is three of them. Well, all of a sudden, those three swords have reawoken. And as they've reawoken, everybody is aware of it who is aware of what that kind of power could mean. Right. So all of a sudden, everybody starts vying for supremacy. The treaty signing was really a ruse because 
they attacked the Glass Kingdom, the Countathelian dynasty and the dynasty of Hanaramidola launched this all out invasion of the Glass Kingdom because there are things within the Glass Kingdom that they want. And the Countathelian dynasty, they had no intention of ending this war as, as a peace treaty, you could say. They have their own ambitions about what their plans are for the entire world. And their world is really, really large. So it takes time to cover it. And when I say like really large, if we put it in perspective, um, like take Jupiter, Jupiter is the largest planet in our solar system. Right. The world in this book, it's, it's called Levi Samanos V. Levi Samanos V, it's like saying to be under the influence of sleep. So the world in itself encourages the idea that when you open this book, it's like a spell has been put over you to sleep. And now you are drifting into this other world where that's where you'll be while you sleep. And when you wake up, you come back to where you were before you started reading it. And that's that's kind of the feeling that I'm, I'm wanting people to, to get from that. So that world is about three times the size of Jupiter, the actual physical planet. So when you think about the scale of how massive it is, it takes time to do things and to travel. And although there's technology, there are still things that it takes time to do. That's why the war has lasted 800 years, because the counts are trying to conquer the entire world. And when you have endless resources, endless soldiers, you can fight forever because war, in a sense, is just money. So they have all of that. That's not a thing to them. They have nothing but wealth. The the lowest kind of person on the totem pole of the Countathalian dynasty would be somebody who's like your Howard Hughes, your Bill Gates. Okay. You have all this money, but their stature of wealth is that small compared to those who rule that empire. Their wealth is that's crazy. So much more vast, you really can't put a number on it. It's just it's beyond ad infinitum. <laughs> it's just like to this very very obscure point that it exists. So they can do things forever, and it it makes no difference to them whatsoever. And the reasons they're doing their things, the reason all these other powers start rising up, there are things that begin to happen. And Adonis, he has to pick one of the wrongs and find a way to make it right, making the same bad choices that that were made the first time when it happened. So, it, you know, how can you do what's right when all you can do is what's wrong? <laughs> That's a really great hook. That's an awesome question. <laughs> and he has his own ambitions and motives for things that he's trying to do. And that's just how it is. That's just how it, it, it functions. Um, but that's, you know, in a nutshell, that, you know, in the things I've just told you, that's like 9% of what the story is actually about. That's what's on the surface as it goes on. It's so many more things underneath that that the readers will get to explore. And that's where we get to the true root of what's happening with these characters in this world. That's really that's really where it goes. I am such a huge fan of those stories of like those kind of like those political fantasies where they're warring factions and, you know, unrest. And I think that's why going back to Final Fantasy, why I love 12 is because 
I feel like once it got into more of like the fantastical elements and once you figure out the truth of the storyline, it's like, all right, it kind of took a little bit of dip for me. But just having that first half of the story where it's just, you know, these two warring nations and this little tiny place in between is kind of stuck in the middle of it. Like, I eat that stuff up. I think that's so insanely interesting. I mean, I don't know if anybody else does, but that's just me. I get you, man. I, I get what you mean. I really do. And it's it's just that it's one of those things that, you know, you want people to be engrossed in the things that are going on. And, and those are all really important elements to it. Before you go, I want everybody to know where they can find more of the stuff online. Like anything else you want to plug, like your social network sites and things like that, because people need to know about this. So please, please, please let everybody know where they can find more of your work on the Internet. Oh, sure. Um, So we have a Facebook page. If they just type in Symphonic Verses and it's X-I-M. P-H-O-N-I-C-V-E-R-S-U-S. It will pop up. It was on Bleeding Cool News last month. I've had a lot of other interviews that people have done on it on blog sites and things like that. So Facebook, there's not a website right now, but then there is the Broken Heart production page, which that's the studio itself that that I own. That is that's how the, the book is produced. That's actually the home of it. You know, those are the places where I'm on social media wise. We have a Twitter as well, which the Twitter is is Broken Heart Productions, uh, Samina Aorum. Um, but anytime you type in, again, symphonic verses, it all just pops up right there. And I stay in touch with people as often as I can. So if people want to check it out or they have questions, I encourage them to, to ask or to take a look and I will, you know, get back to them as soon as I can. And, um, the pages, I try to update them regularly with news and artwork and things that I can show. And, um, yeah, that, that's, that's like the best way to, to kind of interact with the book. And once I make the other announcement that I was telling you about, I'll be sure to like provide you with links and everything that I could send to you with other stuff. Um, so that if you get a chance to share it around, people can, you know, they can all get the information from the same place. Awesome, Jing man. This has been so much fun, man. I'm so glad we got a chance to sit down and chat. Oh yeah, dude. I and I totally want to do this again so we can we can talk more Final Fantasy. It's very important. Very important. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, for everybody else, I hope you really enjoyed that episode, and please stick around for after the theme. You'll hear all of my social networking sites. But for now, that'll do it for Adrian Has Issues, and we will see you next issue. Hey guys, I'm Adrian. And I'm His Issues. Wait, what? Hey guys, I'm Adrian. And I'm... Wait, wait, that's not right. Hey guys, I'm Adrian. And I'm Eileen. Tune in to the Adrian Has Issues podcast. Each week we chat with some great people. Including me from time to time. Comic book creators, comedians. Musicians and actors. Tax collectors, Zamboni drivers. (sighs) Point is, basically anyone willing to sit down for a geeky discussion or two on all things pop culture. Visit AdrianHasIssues.com where you can download and stream every episode. Especially the ones featuring yours truly. 
Visit Adrian Has Issues on Facebook and Twitter. And subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Please leave a rating and review and tell me how amazing I am. Us. I mean us. Ah, I'm kidding. You're way cooler than I am anyway. Aw, thanks, babe. Oh, and Adrian Has Issues is also a proud member of the Tangent Bound Podcast Network. Awesome. Nice save, Brodor. <sighs> Visit AdrianHasIssues.com. <laughs>